Hey everybody, welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. Uh, this is the new format where uh, we're talking with um, people that I've found interesting about Bible prophecy or other related stuff. Today we're talking with Greg Anderson. Um, I know Greg, or first uh, saw him through various forums on Facebook and stuff, and he always had some really insightful things to talk about with Bible prophecy. Clearly, kindred spirits in a lot of ways and a lot of uh, the way that we kind of see things. But more than that, I think it was just a interesting to see a person that was uh, as interested in Bible prophecy as I'm sure a lot of you are out there as well. So, uh, Greg, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Good to be here. Yeah, good to have you. Um, so why don't we just start off by just telling people just uh, the elevator pitch about who you are, where you come from, and uh, what what does Bible prophecy have to do with it? Okay, uh, let's see. Short version. Uh, I live in San Diego County. I was, I'm a native San Diego County person. Uh, became a Christian in 1977, had some formal training at a uh, dispensational Bible college, a couple of them actually, graduated from uh, Southern, what is now Southern California Seminary, blah, blah, blah. This is back in the early to mid-80s. Uh, love the Lord, love Scripture, have been a student of Scripture the whole time. Um, prophecy, basically was was raised in a dispensational pre-trib environment actually spent a year at uh, Tim LaHaye's college and uh, under him and other teachers uh, became more interested in the rapture sequence after reading Doug Moo's exegesis of second Thessalonians at that time decades ago I sort of leaned towards post-trib and put it on the shelf Came back later, started studying. Bottom line, came to, to pre-wrath, basically. That's, I'm a, uh, a firm pre-wrath believer, um, as opposed to pre-trib or post-trib. And I got involved in the Facebook forums a couple of years ago, two forums in particular. One is a dispensational forum. The other one is a pre-wrath. And I like to interact with people and uh, post essays and whatnot. Um, yeah. Other than that, let's see, married, a couple kids, grandkids, and whatnot. Well, uh, I don't know where to start. I think maybe one of the more uh, relevant starting points would just to be, um, where do you see us in terms of the Bible prophecy timeline and what kind of things are you watching for and what kind of things are you, are you seeing? Maybe that's a good, good place to start. Sure. Well, um, these are interesting times that we live in uh, with the, uh, the COVID thing going on and whatnot. Um, I'll answer that by in a couple of ways, uh, but first let me just say I grew up in the Hal Lindsey, you know, the rapture is going to happen in 1978 thing. I still got the t-shirt around here somewhere. Mm -hmm. So I've been through all of that, even as a pre-trib person. I'm not a date setter, um, but I do believe that Daniel's 70th week is future, um, and I think that the events that are going on in the world today are most likely a precursor leading up to the 70th week. The second coming of Christ could happen a hundred years from now. It could. Um, but I have a feeling it's a little closer than that. So I watch, um, I watch the news. There's a lot of uh, fake news out there. So you have to sort of be discerning. I always keep an eye on what's going on in the Middle East. I keep an eye on the things that could potentially lead up to a mark of the beast platform. I don't think the mark of the beast is here at all. Um, 
So we'll see how this, this uh, COVID thing plays out. Well, let's kind of t- take that uh, last part in and run with it a little bit. The idea of the Mark of the Beast system. And, you know, I, I, I have taken the position and I'm totally open to being, I, I have I'm, none of these positions are really set in stone. I mean, I'm, that's what I hope to uh, be anyway. Um, but for example, the Mark of the Beast system, I believe we've got two trains running. You know, one is this, this march towards this terrible techno- technocracy dystopia that with everybody trying to be, you know, connected to computers and their brains and the rest of it, this, that whole thing that's happening. And I see as a part of that line that the so-called new world order and the, uh, their obsession with sort of tracking and tracing everybody. And I know instinctively that that's not just a bunch of rich people uh, doing it for the sake of doing it, uh, that probably Satan has, is directing that in some way, shape or form for his purposes. Um, but on the other hand, I could see that being a necessary component of the world for a thousand years. You know, I mean, either way, con- it, control people that want control have always wanted total control. And what better way to get total control is to not only control the entire world in a global government, but also to have everybody chipped and so they, you know, all this other stuff. So, so let's, let's kind of run with that a little bit. And what do you see the mark of the beast system is? And, and, and specifically, what do you see as it, what are the necessary components with regard to Bible prophecy and that system? Okay. Well, let me sort of divide my answer into two, two columns here on the left is what I see going on geopolitically on the geopolitical chessboard. And I see the, uh, the rollout of what's called United Nations Agenda 21 slash 2030. And that's a hidden in plain sight uh, blueprint, basically, for social engineering for the planet, where the ruling financial elite plan to um, inventory and control the world through AI and various technological components to make that all happen, a a giant digital control grid. So that's the first side of my answer. And that really doesn't necessarily have anything to do with Bible prophecy. That could be just something that's naturally rolling out. However, I don't think that it is just natural because I've studied the background of the ruling elite that are rolling out Agenda 21. And at the very top, they're Satanists and they have an agenda and it looks very much like the flip side of Bible prophecy that we look at in Scripture. So on the other side of the coin, the mark of the beast itself, um, when we see that implemented in Revelation 13, where the false prophet, the, prophet the, uh, the beast that comes up from the earth, forces everyone to take the mark of the sea beast, that could be something that is purely supernatural. In other words, not really uh, having a tech-based component, but more likely... I think this is just my, my gut feel. My, my feeling is that it will be tech-based and that what's going on today is a part of that. So much so that I think that this tracking, contact tracing, uh, passport technology is going to be accepted very soon, mm-hmm. like it already is in China and parts of India. Mm-hmm. And it's going to become norm, the normal normalcy. So that the mark of the beast, when it finally comes along, won't really be 
from a tech standpoint, it won't be much more than downloading a new app. That right. doesn't mean that people. Yeah. Oh, good. Uh, I just, I agree with that, you know, a hundred percent. It seems to me more than anything else is these kinds of things are just the walls closing in, making the choices that we'll ultimately have very limited and therefore making the decision that I see that it's inherent in the mark of the beast uh, choice uh, a much more binary one, you know, um, you can't, it, it's going to be a very, very difficult road ahead to refuse this um, because the walls all have closed in so much, but go ahead. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that that's already underway. Um, there's, there is resistance in the United States. There's resistance around the world, but if you look at what's happening in China, if you look at what's happening in Australia and New Zealand, um, that's really the, the beta test bed right now where this stuff is rolling out and they're actually forcing people into a situation where if they don't accept this tech, this tracking tech, they can't drive a car, they can't have a job, they can't send their kids to school, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's coming and that we're probably going to see that in but the ag- very near future. But again, I kind of, and I feel like I may be overcorrecting a little bit from a lot of the Mark of the Beast theories that are out there right now. And I don't, I don't want to do that. I want to be, I want to say, yes, it's, you're right. That, that is the Mark of the Beast system in, in a sense. But I also want to be open to the idea that this terrible thing that's happening with forcing everybody to, to live that they want us to and take the things that they want us to do and be complete slaves, just like China or worse than China ever was, um, that system, with a lot of killing in the midst of all that stuff, all that can be a natural outgrowth of where this is all going anyway. The satanic system that's being built. I mean, there's no, there's no, the system it might be, but it still, we still got to wait for the things to happen. You know, it's not the mark of the beast just because you can't buy or sell. You know what I mean? It, it, if something that's, happened to no. where we couldn't buy or sell unless we did the thing, it doesn't make that the mark of the beast. But I agree a hundred percent. It but, does not make that the mark of the beast. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, and that's just all. I think maybe I'm overcorrecting, and I don't want to say, oh, well, then go for it. You know, be a part of the New World Order system and get your chips and your and your vaccines or whatever. No, I'm not saying any of that. Don't get a chip. Don't get a vaccine. But 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 our criteria as uh, not just Bible believers, but as people who are outspoken about what the Bible actually says in its face value context, we have to be specific about that. And, and we need to be make sure that we're talking about the, the actual things that we need to watch for and those kind of things. So, but as far as it being yeah. right around the corner and all being implemented and those things happening, it certainly could. Uh, but go ahead. Yeah, I uh, think we're on the same page there. But I just remind people that what we're seeing right now globally is unprecedented. I know nothing in history that, that it resembles the spell that the world is under right now with the global lockdown and so forth and the promise of what is rolling out. We've got Trump here in the United States promising to use the U.S. military to race this new um, vaccine, Operation Warp Speed, and it's kind of uh, daunting. So there's that going on. I I think getting back to the mark of the beast and, and prophecy, I look at the Middle East I look at the formation or the constellation of, of chess pieces that would point to Mystery Babylon, which I believe is the precursor system that comes worldwide before 
the beast is revealed. And so while I am pre-wrath, I believe the Antichrist will be revealed as such to the world at the midpoint. What I'm watching for right now is the formation in the Middle East of the Babylon system, the, the mystery Babylon system described in Revelation 17. So to be clear, would I mean, you see the you see Mystery Babylon as having a great deal of application in the 70th week and and whatnot, but you wouldn't necessarily say that we we would need to see uh, buildup of infrastructure and that kind of stuff in the meantime. If we were, uh, I'm not sure. I'm, in other uh, in other words, would you say that Mystery Babylon, the things described in Mystery Babylon, are primarily regarding events that take place in the 70th week of Daniel. However, the system itself should be visible before the 70th week of Daniel. Yes, I'm saying that that logically follows, that we would see precursor, because so much of what's described about Mystery Babylon in Revelation 17 and chapter 18, it's, it's worldwide. She sits on many waters. It involves a commercial aspect as well as a religious aspect. I don't believe that those things would happen overnight. I agree. For, for, for that reason, I keep an eye on things. But remember, I'm, I'm a Hal Lindsey recovered uh, yeah. <laughs> budding yeah. of the fig tree guy. We all, yeah, yeah. We all have a little bit of Hal Lindsey hangover in us if we're coming from there. But let me push back a little bit on that and say um, that I agree to a certain extent, but I would say two things. First, the conquests of the antichrist on his rise to power whether you view that as the specific wars in daniel 11 uh or perhaps maybe it's one and the same thing that's another question i might have uh is about the 10 nations three of which he subdues etc etc which i think is pretty well whether it's that and the wars are combined he is consolidating powers in a, in a world government as he's on the scene. And I, I mean, my understanding of that, and I think I could make a r- relatively good case is that those wars happen in that first three and a half year period, but whether that's the case or not, let's say they happen in three and a half years before the 70th week even begins or take three and a half years out of the equation, just whatever before the 70th week, we'd still need to see those wars for the complete consolidation of power to happen. In other words, I, 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 I can't prove it, but I would see that, Mystery Babylon being the capital city of, uh, of his empire is only that made that way after his unbelievably victorious conquests. Um, and then the second part of that would be, I know that a lot of people and probably rightly so see it as the center of commerce of all the world's commerce. And, um, and therefore look for a city that can fit, that criteria and I could be wrong and you could probably give me a verse and I'd just be like, Oh, you're right. Uh, because I, I don't, I don't can't think of one right th- at the moment, but here's my pushback on that idea, which is that I don't think it needs to be the economic capital of the world for all things ever. I think all it needs to be and all the only reason the mystery Babylon is described as wealthy. It is the place in which the world must go to worship the image of the beast uh, that the false prophet requires. And as a result of that worship with gold, silver, precious stones, the daily offering stuff that's described that the merchants bring to the city for that specific purpose. In other words, it probably is other stuff, 
but its wealth is surrounding around that one requirement that's associated with everything, the, the declaration of deity, the, uh, the impending sort of required worship and, and the, the specific things that are required to worship. Well, that covers a, a lot there. Let me pick a couple things to respond to. Um, in, in my view, the Antichrist is the sea beast, the little horn. The Antichrist comes on the scene in a subtle way at the beginning of the 70th week, and he is not revealed to the world as such at that time. He, um, th there is a spirit of Antichrist, which is sort of a phrase or a handle referring sort of like zeitgeist, but I think it means more than that. I think it means his team of, in the unseen realm. There is a spirit of Antichrist that will be working in the first half of the 70th week. And we see that connected with the events shown with the four horsemen and the opening of the, or the, the events associated with the first four seals. But I don't see the Antichrist being... Uh, recognized worldwide like newspaper headlines during that three and a half years, the first three and a half years going around with wars and so forth. I think he's a geopolitical figure that stays in the background, consolidating power vertically, eliminating competition and so forth, but yet still unrevealed. Uh, some view the woman riding the beast as though they're partners, like fully, um, in partnership and that she's promoting the antichrist and so forth. I don't see it that way. I think that the woman is what's in view in the first half of this final seven year period and that the antichrist supports her from a underneath behind the scenes view um, because he's about to throw her off when he's revealed as the personal antichrist at the midpoint. So back to Mystery Babylon, Revelation 17 and 18, and the commercial aspect. In Revelation 18, I don't believe that it teaches that that city, which is Jerusalem, by the way, is a manufacturing hub or that the, those goods are necessarily being sold or traded from Jerusalem. I see it just as Jerusalem, the, the great city, as John describes it, as being a financial hub like Wall Street or other financial centers like the city of London, not to be confused with London, the city. Right now, there are financial hubs around the world. People know about some of them. I think what we're seeing happening with, with the Middle East right now and with Jerusalem in particular is many of the chess pieces are moving towards Jerusalem as a center, not just for... Um, embassies and so forth, not just for recognition, but financially. I think there are things moving in the direction to where Jerusalem will become a financial trade center. And therefore, what I'm saying is that the prophecies that talk about uh, commanders of ships being able to see her destruction from a distance and so forth, that doesn't mean that Jerusalem, for example, has to be a port city for that prophecy to be fulfilled. Anyways, just checking back with you. Are you following what I'm saying? Because I'm kind of uh, jumping around. Well, I mean, sure. On that last point, uh, point, I don't think it, yeah, it never says that it's a port city. All it says is the merchants can see the smoke of its burning. So uh, if sea merchants can see the smoke of its burning is all that really is required. And of course, ships bring goods to it, which ships, of course, bring goods to uh, just about everywhere. Um, but exactly. no, it, with the, with regard to that theory, um, mm -hmm. 
I would say first, when do you see the wars of the Antichrist occurring in Daniel 11, 40 through 45? Daniel 11, which passages? 36 through 45? 40, I'll read them. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen. And by the way, we're definitely past Antiochus at this point. It's pretty much universally agreed that probably somewhere around 36, but we're at 40 by this point. Um, right. So the king, king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and many ships. He shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but he, uh, these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the main parts of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and silver and of all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. Rumors of wars, by the way, is the word only other time that's really used. And he shall go out with great fury and destroy and devote many to destruction. He shall pitch his palatial tents between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, yet shall come to his end with none to help him. And then in the next, next verse is the abomination of desolation. At that time, Michael shall the prince of your people. So whatever happens when his coming to his end is actually the beginning of the mid, midpoint. So yeah, that, the phrase, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I think I sort of led the witness there. Um, the phrase at that time uh, is something that we see repeats itself in Daniel. There, there is a certain amount of prophecy revealing the landscape going forward and then a return back to uh, recapitulating and so forth. I, I view these wars starting in verse 36, the maneuvers, the military maneuvers of the Antichrist um, as being in the second half of the 70th week. And the, the, the prophecy in Daniel here is describing many things that happen during that period. In When it goes on into ver, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, at that time, I think that is a general, a general reference to the last three and a half years. I think everything from verse Daniel eleven thirty six all the way through the beginning of Daniel 12 is looking at the last three and a half years, the, which begin with the, the Great Tribulation, the Abomination event, um, and then during that period of time, there is a unending struggle of the Antichrist aligning his forces, uh, the Ten Horns doing their job to give their power to him. He has battles from surrounding kingdoms. Um, it's a power, a power grab, and it continues throughout the three-and-a-half-year period. In fact, I would contend it, it spills over into the time period, the 75 days after the 70th week ends and even after Armageddon, but that's, well, sure. That's I mean, I certainly see the seven Kings and, and or the, the, uh, the other Kings rather not seven, but the other Kings that are given power with him for one hour with the beast and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I certainly see that as post midpoint, you know, that's, that's up towards, like you say, Armageddon or whatever the, the whole burning the mystery Babylon is clearly uh, at towards the end. Um, but anyway, um, if I may say just one more thing, part of the, the, the key to what my perspective is goes to Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and this business about the revelation, the apocalypsis of the Antichrist to the world. That mm -hmm. happens at the midpoint. And Paul makes a point of that because that's one of the I got it, I got uh, it. markers no. that, that proves that well, let's, let's talk about that because, because it's incredibly important. And I've been getting a lot of questions about this uh, from 
the the film, the Seven Preacher Problems film, because obviously in talking to pre-tribulationalists, it's important to say, this is one of the places where you can say, if the revealing of the man of lawlessness is at the midpoint, which Paul seems to make exceedingly clear, and most pre-tribulationalists don't deny that. I mean, John Walver, John MacArthur, sure. they agree that, that the revealing of the man of lawlessness is at the midpoint. Um, yes. So the pre-tribber will say, well, why can't the revealing of the man of lawlessness be at the beginning of the seven-year period where he makes the covenant? That's when he gets revealed, when he makes the peace agreement, you know, or maybe he's revealed before that, you know, so there's a lot of speculation about that revealing in my, my understanding. Of, I didn't actually have a take on that other than the fact that I knew it was at the midpoint. I couldn't get away from that. Uh, but why the Bible called it a revealing, I didn't actually have an opinion on until like two weeks ago um, when it just sort of dawned on me about what the context of what Paul's talking about here, which is mm -hmm. people asking, when's the day of the Lord supposed to happen? You know, and, and his main thing, he takes two things and he says, these are the two things. Now, yes. And one of those things is this very definite thing, and I think you'll obviously agree that this moment, the abomination of desolation, almost entire Daniel's talked about the Antichrist, but he talked about the Antichrist almost exclusively in the context of the abomination of desolation. Not really. I mean, he gave, he gave other, we got a lot of details about the Antichrist from Daniel. Don't get me wrong, but he was focused on the abomination of desolation for a lot of that time, which is one of the reasons that Jesus makes it a big part of the Olivet Discourse. I would, I would almost say, of the signs Jesus said, here are the signs to watch for. What are the signs of your parousia? Well, let me tell you, I'd say, what do you say? Maybe half, maybe three quarters of that list is all about the abomination of desolation. And he says specifically, when you see the sign spoken of by Daniel the prophet, the abomination of desolation, or however he words it. My point is, is that the revealing makes sense in the Pauline context of Second Thessalonians 2, of you, you won't know when somebody makes a covenant with many. It's what we got one verse about that. It's general as all get out, unless there's some verse I'm not knowing about. There's no, I can speculate about what a covenant with many is. The, the non signs of the birth pains are far too general for me to know what's going on. It's not until a man sits in the temple and declares himself to be God that, that Jesus says, Now run. That's it. Everything I talked about, now that's it. There's no generality to that. We know from that moment on, I won't know until that moment happens that my, my candidate for the Antichrist is in fact the Antichrist. I'll be speculating until that day. But after that day, he will be revealed to Christians. That's my theory, but let's have the counter argument. Yeah, I, I, I hear you, and I agree with most of that. Uh, it's very well put. My response would be that the revealing with a capital R that we've been talking about here, that Paul wrote about in 2 Thessalonians 2. That is the point in the final days when the Antichrist is revealed to the world as what he is, when he more or less decloaks. He's no longer in the infrastructure underneath the Mystery Babylon system. I, I got you, I got you. I, I, let me, let me, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, this is, I'm terrible at interviews, apparently. I got the Alex Jones sort of interview uh, mentality, I guess. Uh, but, but I get what you're saying. So he's revealed in the sense, and this is, I believe this is kind of the Hal Lindsey hangover possibility as well, that we consider the moment of the, the midpoint as if now he takes the mask off and everybody knows he's evil now, right? He, he destroys the temple and is out, you know, knocking stuff over and, oh, I thought he was a peaceful guy. Now he's an evil guy, right? The revealing in that sense. Is that kind of the flavor well, that I'm hearing? Well, I, 
I would say everybody, it's not that everybody knows he's evil. There's a combination of things. The abomination event itself, there is the fatal wound from which he recovers, and he reveals himself as or claims to be God, and the world worships him. And, they, and, and, and God sends a strong delusion coupled with these events to where the world, the world isn't going to say, oh, my God, he's evil. The world is going to say, we love you. <laughs> You're the man. So, and so that's the sense from, to, to the earth dwellers that he's revealed. To insiders, to believers, I think the Olivet Discourse and other passages show us that we're in, we are invited to look for precursor signs before that, that those with discernment are going to be able to see certain things. For example, the signing of the, uh, he'll confirm a firm covenant. Uh, the people, the prince to come, will make a firm covenant with the many. Um, we don't know whether that's going to be public or not. I think God leaves that kind of cryptic, but we can look for it. We can look for some sort of a covenant arrangement in the Middle East that would allow the sacrifice and offering to continue so that, to, to initiate sure. so that it can be interrupted. Oh, so yeah. I mean, logically, I, I fully expect to have a really good idea, you know, leading up to that. Um, but I would say here's I another question. Christians will know. I, I, I think Christians can. I, I, based on what I'm seeing right now, Greg, I don't think so. I think, I think Christians are looking for – I mean, I hope so, but I'm afraid that they won't. We, we're doing well, exactly – the, the, the thing that we always between, do, which is we're jumping at every that history, the history of Christians have always done is think that everything is the end times with disregarding. Uh, but, you know, here I, well, I want to. It depends on who we're talking about, because, yeah, there's going to be the sensationalists out there that, that every time there's a blood moon or or the pope says something, they're going to say, that's it. They're, Henry Kissinger is the Antichrist. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying students of prophecy who have discernment, can look at these, at the model of Mystery Babylon, can look at the seven years laid out in Scripture, and unless it's all going to happen, poof, miraculously as a miracle, like overnight, it stands to reason that we'll be able to see the lead-in of these things. It doesn't mean that they're knowable with certainty, sure, sure, but sure. it means that we can look. Oh, I 100% agree. I mean, that, I mean obviously, I, I believe that the birth pains are cleverly laid out, not only to correspond to the seals, uh, but, I, but I also, and you may or may not agree with that, but, but, but I certainly, it's like I mentioned that sort of uh, cryptic mention of uh, rumors of wars, which I think are associated sure. with Daniel 12. I think, I don't think that those are general at all. I think the traditional pre-trib model is that those first things, wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, that they just, you know, are so general as to be meaningless. You know, they've been going on for 2,000 um, years or whatever. So it's, it's a very, it's, it's all a part of the, uh, the final 70th week, in my opinion. And specifically, I believe that the wars have been. I there. agree. But here's a question that, that le leads me to believe that the revealing of the man, okay, uh, the revealing of the man of lawlessness is, in fact, um, before the midpoint or at the midpoint. Or not, we all agree on that. You know what I mean? When do you think, or do you think his declaration of deity at the midpoint in the abomination of desolation is correspond, co does correspond to his apparent resurrection from the dead? That is to say, are those two connected? Probably. I can't prove it explicitly because the, the 
when John sees the beast, the sea beast, and notices that one of its heads uh, had been fatally wounded and has recovered, that verse there in Rev 13 does not connect it explicitly with the abomination. But it stands to reason when you compare Scripture with Scripture, you see other passages like Paul saying that God will send them, the earth dwellers, a strong delusion that they would Mm -hmm. believe a lie. There's going to be a game-changing event that surrounds the abomination of desolation to where that event is only going to be awful to believers or to Jews that are being told to take the mark. They don't, I'm talking I think, about, I think it's going to be glorious. Uh, that's where I would differ. And I would say, I would say that the, it's going to be a triumphal situation for people that are buying his, buying what he's selling. Uh, okay. Well, so we don't differ on that. I'm saying the same thing. Well, we're okay. But let me kind of, flesh out my point on this. And again, I'm going back to Daniel, these wars in Daniel. Um, Mm -hmm. If he's, we have here just reading this face value, we know it's the antichrist point one. He, he is defeating all these countries that surround Israel that actually also happen to be the same countries that are a part of greater Israel um, that were uh, promised to Abraham, et cetera. He's completely destroying these enemies. They're attacking him. He's destroying them. He, nothing is anything but victorious in this passage all the way up to the end when it says he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain yet he shall come to his end and none will help him now we could look at that and say okay well this is just daniel and fast forward he just said you know the antichrist is going to do stuff but it's okay he's going to get killed you know that last line is just thrown in there He's going to come to his end and no one will help him. It's just Daniel and fast forward, you know. But if it is Daniel and fast forward, and he just threw that last line of he shall come to his the first negative thing that happens, he shall come to his end and no one was help him out of nowhere, then you then when does this take place in the 70th week? Do, do we actually believe that these wars are going to happen up until like anywhere at the very end of Armageddon, that this triumph is happening you know, at, right before no. Armageddon or something. So, but then if, if that shall come to his end and no one will help him, if we take Daniel 12, one as being well, again, Daniel 12, one, um, you got it in front of you. Yes. Yeah, I do. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise and there will be a time of distress, etc. Such as never was the nation to that time, which we know is the midpoint. Now, if, if the midpoint, I mean, do we agree that 12-1 has to be the midpoint? I mean, you're a pre-rather. Of course, of course, this is the midpoint. Yes. Yes, we agree. And, and at, so it is crucial about that at time, but I don't want to press the point because you made the point that it could be sort of a Danielic sort of a, a phrase that's. Well, it's an, let, let me, let me clarify. It is a, it is a stock Old Testament phrase like the phrase on that day or in that day referring to the day of the Lord. Um, it, it just simply, there are, there are many things in the Old Testament prophets that will, they'll go in and they'll look at the, the day of the Lord or precursors to the day of the Lord, and they'll say, this happens. And on right. that day, this happens. Okay. And, on that I, day, I, this I, happens. and I agree with I mean, that. That could be it. Set up like All I'm trying to do here, I'm trying to, I'm trying to wrap this up in a bow and, and see, if it, see if you'll buy it. Okay, so if... If that's the case, that it is the midpoint and he comes to his end is a reference to his death, but it's not his death because he, the next verse is the midpoint. Then what you have right. is this completely victorious Antichrist who conquers greater Israel, 
camps, camps, right? His whole army's around Israel and says, here we are. I've done it. I've actually done the thing that no Messiah has ever done. You always wanted a Messiah to, to conquer Romans and to make Israel the capital city of the world. That's why you rejected Jesus is because nobody did that. Well, here it is on a silver platter. Yet he comes to his end. No one helps them. If we have a resurrection there at that time, then Michael should stand. Then we have his declaration of deity of sitting in the temple to be a perfect little nice that's why he sits in the temple and declares that's why the midpoint happens the declaration of deity is associated and and very much tied into that if the declaration of deity is and the worship of the antichrist because of that beast wound which is very important part of the worship of the world for him in revelation then then god sending the strong delusion so that they would believe the lie in second thessalonians 2 sort of it all ties in back into that midpoint that, that his, uh, I'm, again, I'm assuming the strong delusion is the resurrection of the Antichrist sent by God so that they would believe the lie. Anyway, uh, let's just yeah, pause see, that one. I it's see clear. what you're saying. I, I, I think that some of the phrases in Daniel, such as, and uh, he will, he will meet his demise or he'll go to the, uh, that's also very common. It's like in revelation when the angel tells John, the beast that um, is a, was and is and is about to come out of the abyss and will go, and he will go to dis- destruction that that final phrase there occurs more than once and it's just a a tag ending saying that this thing is on the rise it's coming into power now but by the way in the end he loses that's sure. that's my I mean, take on that i think it could very well be that um but i also think it's it's too it's too unique of a phrase at that time that I mean, I agree. He says at the time of the end and phrases like that. But at that time is a unique phrase. And in any other context, we would we would use that as a as a as a as a timing phrase. But I agree. I agree with your position, especially how it ends. It could very well be that. And Daniel does that very often. It's in fact in Daniel twelve here where you get the idea of uh, uh, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. There's a thousand years between those two words, you know that comma. Sure. And so Daniel is in fast forward quite a lot. So I get it. Um, but let's, for the sake of and argument vice, and vice versa, Chris, if what you're saying is true, if Daniel 12, one, a, if now at that time is a hard temporal marker, meaning that everything that came before it must have happened before it, then what you're saying follows. And that would be a good model, a good way of explaining the, those pieces. I don't think that's what's going on, but we can respectfully disagree. You know, it's, sure. it's all good. Okay, let's move on to some of the stuff with the uh, vaccines, the chips. You sent me an article, and I'd seen that article literally minutes after I did the uh, uh, podcast that I released last, or I guess I don't know when this is getting released, but um, right where I had made the point that so far any of the proposed – universal vaccines that they're proposing don't have chips in them. Um, and no sooner had I said that as they come out with one, it's not actually in, in the vaccine, but it's in like a, it's like a tracker for all diseases. Maybe you could just walk us through it and see what's going on. Oh yeah. I, I follow tech stuff that's rolling out elsewhere in the world. Again, as I'd said earlier, China, um, Australia, some of these other countries um, outside the United States are where we're seeing this roll out, usually in connected, connection with the Ball Gates Foundation and whatnot. And what that article was saying is that 
technology is coming to the forefront now and being offered and sometimes imposed on cultures and civilizations to track them. It's being sold. The pretext is, is to deal with health issues. Um, but in fact, it has a more robust platform to it. It allows tracking. And the tech that they're rolling out right now is really, it's, it's not a chip. I don't really like to use that word because it's so 80s in a way. It's, um, it's a combination of synthetic biology and technology, everything from smart dust to y- you name it, that becomes a platform. Once it's installed in a person by injection or skin tattoo or whatever, once it's installed, it turns the human body into its own uh, vaccine producer. It's all, it's, it's, it becomes a receptacle or a platform that can receive instruction, instructions, downloadable instructions, to tell the human cells to create this protein or this antigen in anticipation of some health disease or some pathogen that's supposedly out there. So in that respect, it's a lot like installing windows in a person. And then there have to be updates and upgrades to fight malware. And, oh, there's this hacker that's come along, so you need the next installment or the next update. That, by analogy, is how this new RNA-based platform um, I forget what they called it in that article because it has different names elsewhere, immunity passports, uh, freedom uh, passports. And all this stuff, is, it's hidden in plain sight. This isn't uh, uh, hidden away somewhere. Well, let me this stop you there like- make sure we're talking about the same thing. So um, on the one hand, the, the one thing I, I didn't read the whole article very thoroughly, so I could be just missed it. Um, but it seemed like the application for that was to uh, detect various viruses, including coronavirus, and it's going to send you an update if you've got COVID-19 kind of thing. Um, right. And I've right. assumed that that would have to be downloaded wirelessly or something in order for that to work. Um, but in the, I, I'm just making sure we're not combining that with the concept of the RNA vaccine, which in my reading of that, and I read a few papers on it and things like that, it didn't see anything remotely. Uh, it was, it was RNA that was, you know, not downloadable or anything of that stuff, or at least not publicly. Um, am I missing? Well, there's a, there's, no, there's a distinction there. The RNA vaccines that are being rolled out right now by Moderna and these competing pharmaceutical companies, the vaccine that they're pushing right now is specifically as a response to the, the COVID-19 pandemic. But what I was talking about in the article that I sent you was the broader view of the rollout of synthetic biology and this uh, platform that is installed in humans to do all these other things, not just the COVID-19 RNA vaccine, but to do tracking, to implement a social credit system, to be able to uh, enable you to walk into a building or to do business or to drive a car. All of this is a way of, of inventorying and tracking people. And all this technology is new. It's not like the stuff that's already been out there, including the RNA vaccine. This is all new. It's untested. Um, so, yeah, there, are, there were two things there being mentioned. The article that I sent you, uh, the passport type contact tracing issue, and the RNA vaccines. Mm-hmm. But they use the same type of nanotechnology and synthetic biology that is rolling out 
at, at record speed. Right. Operation warp speed is what Trump calls it. Right. Well, is to that be clear again, that, that, that more advanced thing uh, didn't look like it was ready to be rolled out or anything like that. It wouldn't be a part of any kind of first wave. I mean, they might do anything and probably already have it ready to go in, in trucks, but I'm just saying, according to that article, it was, down the road before it was supposed to be no, no not in other countries there's a lot of it rolling out now i can send you some more articles i post a lot of this on my wall all the time from from different sources showing the actual white papers the actual plan um it's in beta phase i'm not saying that it's full on you know fully developed production phase but it's in beta phase and they're rolling it out um, i know people here in San Diego, California, that are involved in the trials with Moderna and other vaccine mm. companies that are that are trying out this fa- uh, the vaccine. Sure. And I, 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 okay, in case you're wondering, and we uh, got cut off there, so let's uh, let's restart this uh, this conversation. What were you saying there? Um, we were talking generally about the, the rollout of this new technology, synthetic biology, and and vaccines and whatnot and the various components that make it up. And I was talking about how I see all of this as introducing a, pla- a, a platform, a technological platform into individual humans that will allow them to interface with medical systems for upgrades and whatnot. And then we were focusing, we we're talking specifically about the rollout of these COVID-19 vaccines, um, how Trump has promised that within the next month or two, he's got millions at least of doses ready to go and to have the armed forces, the U.S. armed forces implement their rollout. That, that's all mainstream media. You can Google that. Now, the point that I was making is that a day or two ago, I, I think I saw it on Breitbart, Trump made the statement, the, the FDA made the statement that they were a little concerned that we might be rushing this too soon. And Trump responded with a press release saying that he would veto or block any effort by the FDA to slow down the rollout of this vaccine so that people could reenter society. And I found that interesting. That's where we left off. Right. Okay. And right. I, and I want to do a couple things there. Um, I want to talk about, uh, the Mark of the Beast, because I do feel like when we say that, people are going to make the connection to the Mark of the Beast. So I want to talk more about what we're definitely looking for. And I'm I'm okay with the Mark of the Beast being some kind of technological, even po- possibly part of a vaccine, although I think it would have to be also associated with worship because um, anyway, we'll talk about it. But before we get there, I want to go over, and I, obviously I think that's terrible with Trump, and I'm not making excuses for him. I'm just going to convey the sort of Alex Jones, I don't know if you listen to him, but he uh, he's very pro-Trump these days. And he is, you know, uh, very anti this. He's also very anti-vaccine. It was interesting the take that he had on this, which seems like it took him a while to come up with this take. But here's his take on the Trump pushing mm-hmm. vaccines. He sees it as a promoting one of the sort of traditional vaccines, basically just a regular radiated virus that's very watered down in order to, if he can push that over and above Gates's vaccine, then he can circumvent Gates and uh, get everybody to, you know, the people that demand a vaccine in order to go to back to work. He could do that 
and, you know, circumvent the whole control grid of Gates. That's Alex Jones. And I mean, either way, it's terrible yeah. because you're going to you're forcing yeah. somebody to get a vaccine or at least that's what it sounds like. Well, I'm with you on that uh, across the board, Chris. I I know who Alex Jones is. I used to listen to him a long time ago. I think he's done some wonderful things. But at this point, I stopped listening to him a while ago. I think he's controlled opposition, basically. Um, and you're better off probably listening to David Knight. But back to his theory that you just mentioned, that, that what Trump is trying to do is, is find an end run around all these RNA vaccines and, and introduce the old-fashioned kind of vaccine where they use an attenuated version, a dumbed-down version of the, of the virus to create an immune response. I think that smacks of, of a QAnon theory, of, of the, the, the feel-good cult of Trump's working with a bunch of white hat guys underground, and really what he's doing is he's going to give us the good vaccine. I don't buy that, but there's a lot of people that do. Um, well, I mean, I mean, agree. I mean, we won't know till we know. Um, but, but I, I would say if you see opposition from Gates, <laughs> you know, because they're not using remdesivir or his RNA vaccine, yeah. but instead using a traditional vaccine and that becomes the thing, obviously I'm not going to do either one. Right. But that would be interesting. Amen. And it would well, be something I, to take note of regardless. And, and look, I, I'm all for controlled opposition. I think it exists. And I've listened to Alex Jones for 20 years. I know the good and the bad with Alex Jones. My thinking of him yeah. is, that I can't, if he is controlled opposition in anything but wearing it on his sleeve, you know, because it seems like he is just wearing it. I mean, he seems completely transparent to me, the good, the bad. I mean, I just see right through him. If he is, yeah. if he is doing all that and faking me out, he is literally the best actor that has ever walked the face of the earth, in my opinion, because he's, he is just obviously who he is. And look, and Alex Jones is always ultra hyperbolic. Like you can't really trust a lot of, because of his hyperbole, like you almost can't take what he says unless you do it. Cause he's always saying something, but it's like, a, in other words, I will agree to disagree on that. Yeah, I'm just that's, sort of, that's my, my take on him. Well, we're not disagreeing. I, I, I'm agreeing with you. And I, I, he, he is shrill. Alex Jones is what he is, and to, to give him credit, the things he's exposed about the New World Order, you know, that Bush talked about repeatedly, the end game, uh, his, his work on 9-11, I think, has all been superb. But things have changed in the last year or two. It's just like the Drudge Report. The Drudge Report is not what it used to be. These media outlets and pundits are all kind of picking which side they're going to be on right now. Well, so again, I, I look, RFK I, I, Jr., when I when think I, that, when I want to learn about vaccines and 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 the background of vaccines, uh, the freedom that the vaccine industry enjoys since 1986, where they're they're exempt from any uh, prosecution, they they don't have any liability, they don't have to prove that their vaccines are safe and effective like other drugs. You can go to RFK Jr. He's not a doctor, but he's a speaker. And he has aggregated all these expert doctors, biologists, virologists, and, has, and is bringing this material to the forefront right now. And that's what I think Christians need to know about before they consider bypassing the blood-brain barrier, before bypassing the gut and injecting something the way Bill Gates wants to do to, to billions of people. And, and that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the mark of the beast. 
uh, again. Well, let I'm me talk about, let's that, talk about that. I think that's where the crux of this issue is because yeah. um, especially, I, I mean, my current theory is that they're, they're trolling Christians is that they want Christians to believe it's the mark of the beast because their opposition to it. There's no way that they're dumb enough to think that there won't be heartfelt opposition uh, among a forced vaccination to the point that something extreme has to happen. There's no way that's not a part of this plan. So they're using essentially that to, it's not like they thought it was going to work out where there wasn't going to be, let's call it 25% of the population just refused on principle not to be forced to take a vaccination, even if they were just on libertarian grounds or whatever, liberty grounds or whatever kind of grounds. They knew that was going to happen. So they're just using that against us. And I feel like they're calling it luciferase and just obviously stuff that that's going to make Christians stand up and say, I'm not taking it because it's the mark of the beast. Oh yeah. Yeah. The the patent 060606. That's all meant to troll, but it's all part of the divide and conquer thing that's going on everywhere with every group, black, white, young, old, rich, poor, um, Christians, non-Christians right now, the, the elite, the social engineers that are behind this dry run that we're having right now are trying to make everybody fight with everybody else. Well, let's take, it, think- let's take it to the scriptures real quick. So let's talk about the mark of the beast and why do you think, do you think it's going to be possible? Let's say the mark of the beast is here and uh, it is something that you can uh, inject, whether it's a chip or a vaccine or whatever. Do you think somebody can sneak behind somebody and give them that mark of the beast and now they're going to hell? Do you think, do you Absolute- think that, in other words, Absolutely how do you envision, not. yeah, and how do you envision no, the Mark of the question. Beast being played out and maybe just kind of walk us through how you envision the whole scenario happening? Maybe that will help well, us. It, it, it'll either be, in, in my opinion, the Mark of the Beast will either be something spectacularly new and supernatural that no one has ever heard of again, but they're convinced to take because of satanic miracles, or more likely, it will be the next phase of a technology uh, like computers or like the internet of a technology that already exists as a platform. Now, I think it's going to be that method right there. It's going to be a new phase of an existing platform that everybody's already accepted, just like everybody's accepted wearing a mask. Okay. And, and yet to take the mark of the beast, that is going to require a conscious decision to worship the beast, to worship the dragon, because Revelation says that both will be worshipped by the earth dwellers. Um, And so there's no way that a person could be, you could sneak up on a person and, oops, I slipped and and Well, let me ask you this. Somebody will push back and say, well, maybe the worship is just something, um, you know, you you could do without really knowing that you're worshipping it. Do do you see what, what... What's, where's the line of distinction there? What if worshiping is just like some nebulous thing? Well, I don't think there's a lot of material for us to, to, to work with there. There's not, when, when you look at the passages in Revelation 13 about the market, that the false prophet, you know, creates an image of the beast and, and everybody has to worship the image uh, and, and the mark of the beast is taken to be able to buy and sell. So it's a control thing. It doesn't say much more than that. We infer, correctly, I think, that there's conscious, deliber- a deliberate choice to embrace the Antichrist and his system, his, his beast system. 
And I, I stand by that. But I also say, in answer to your, your, your probe here, is that there's not a lot of evidence to where I could say definitively that here's a passage that explicitly says, and everybody who takes it must sign a form and acknowledge that they're mm-hmm. worshiping mm-hmm. the Antichrist. Okay, this right. Is, and there's, two, and there's no agree. scripture there. <laughs> I, I agree. And so the question then becomes, really, if you can pin the mark of the beast as post-midpoint, then you have a lot more contextually that demands more. Okay? Because if well, you I have... think that we should, because the beast rises. If you go to Revelation 12 and 13, um, we see Satan is cast out of heaven at the midpoint. That corresponds to Daniel chapter 12. Um, and then the path, Revelation 12 flows into uh, the, the dragon is seen with the accoutrements, with the seven heads, with the ten horns, and so forth. And then we see the sea beast rising from the sea, and we see the land beast in Revelation 13. And the dragon gives his seat, his power and authority to them. And then the mark of the beast happens. So I think that part of Revelation is a pretty firm chronology there. And it would be difficult to say that the mark of the beast would appear as such before the midpoint. And I did a sort of study from a different perspective that is from Revelation 13. And I think you can make a very strong case that it has to be uh, after the midpoint from there. And again, it's not definitive, but it's almost most, most conservative scholars and really most scholars in general, that if they're premillennial understand the mark of the beast to be after the midpoint. So everybody sort of assumes that for good reasons, not just because of it, they're making an assumption, but there is no verse that I can point to, like you said, and said, the mark of the beast is given after this because they do that or whatever. But um, if we can make that assumption, which I think is a fairly solid ground, then you have a man who has declared himself to be God in a temple. And you have a persecution that begins unlike any that has ever and we know that begins the moment he declares himself to be God. Like that persecution yep. is the moment. So you've got people running. You've got which now you have to assume that as a part of his declaration of deity in the temple, he says, now let's begin killing these other guys who don't think so. And everybody's like, yes, mm-hmm. let's kill them. Um, mm-hmm. So the mark of the beast, therefore, I think you can also make the case is in conjunction with those two things. Now it's the last thing mentioned in revelation 13 and there's no chronological language there. So we can't say that's a definitive thing, but it does come after the false prophet forces everybody to worship the image. And you can make the connection between the worshiping of the image and the beast and the mark of the beast, because the other five or five times it's mentioned in revelation, it always groups those two things together. Those who got the mark and worshiped his image. Now that's not definitive again. So if you can put all those things together, then you have a kind of clearer picture of that. The mark is take this, or you're going to be a part of these people that we're killing. Do you want to be a part of those? No. Okay. Uh, Well then take this mark. And that buying and selling is all in that context, which gives you a, a, I feel a much better picture of what to expect in terms of the mark of the beast. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be worried about any of this other stuff, but it does help us to be like, there has to be a temple unless we'll do what some people do when they, when they have over, history wanted to make it be in their time, they say, well, the well, temple is in your heart or something like that. What I would say to that is that we, we need to distinguish between the campaign of the Antichrist, meaning the Great Tribulation, which kicks off at the midpoint. That is the broader 
program, Satan's broader program. We have to distinguish between that and one of its tech features, which is the mark of the beast, which isn't so much a badge of, of, look at me, I worship the Antichrist. It's a control mechanism. No one can buy or sell if they don't have that mark. Only those who have the mark can buy and sell. And, and therefore, it follows that that is a way of separating the ones that need to be killed, like Christians and unbelieving Jews, Jews who reject Jesus but also reject the mark of the beast, um, and Gentiles, from the people who are earth dwellers, wicked earth dwellers that embrace the Antichrist and the mark of the beast. So the mark of the beast, in, in my view, is an enabling tool. And just like we can see as shadows or precursors today, uh, things like the rollout of a cashless society, the desire to move the world out of where you could have private business transactions and everything would be cashless, maybe with the promise of the security of cryptocurrency and blockchain technology that the government, of course, will issue the only legal form of that. So I'm, I'm saying that we're seeing these precursor things now that resemble the digital control grid that we know will be there with the Antichrist. I mm-hmm. said digital. I can't, I can't find that in the Bible, but the buy-sell mechanism, mm-hmm. where to be able to enforce the buy-sell mechanism, there has to be some infrastructure, some yeah. way of controlling that. And I think that infrastructure is rolling out in, in what's becoming the Babylon system. When the Babylon system is toppled and the harlot is thrown off the beast, the beast will co-opt that system. It'll be an, another phase in consolidating his power and co-opt that infrastructure commercially. And the mark of the beast will be something that probably that, that type of tech will already be common mm-hmm. at that time for other, it'll be as common as an app on your smartphone, but well, it'll be different in the way that we've been describing. Well, okay. So let's, um, I want to, we'll, we'll wrap up here. We don't want to, we want to do this again and I don't want to exhaust our, our topics here. Um, so you tell me which one of these things you want to talk about more, uh, the current peace deal stuff that's going on. Um, Israel and the Mideast in general, uh, maybe some of the riots, upcoming election, in any of those things, what, where, where you want to go? Um, I'd rather talk about Israel and the Middle East in general. We can talk about, we can tie that in with the, the uh, peace deals that are, that are being uh, talked about right now. How's that sound? Sounds good. Go for it. Uh, you want my general take on that, Israel and the Middle East? Yeah, yeah. I think there's been a, a big shift in geopolitics in the last few years, almost since the Obama administration left, the Trump administration came in, and where it used to be Israel versus Al-Qaeda and Islam and this and that, now all of a sudden it's shifted uh, towards Iran. And more importantly, there's talk of, of peace in Israel. Um, Trump has a son-in-law named Jared Kushner. Everybody that follows this stuff knows who that person is. And Kushner has been tasked in the last three years with helping Trump come up with what he calls the deal of the century, Donald Trump being the deal maker. Um, that deal is supposedly going to solve the age-old problem 
of Israel since 1948, since it came into existence as a state in 1948. Uh, it's had start, stutter starts, stutter stops, Kushner's program, but lately, rolling into the election year now, <laughs> we're seeing these other nations, Arab nations, Islamic nations, come on board and sign these deals saying that they're willing to sit down and talk. They're willing to recognize Israel. Um, we've seen other things. The U.S. has moved its embassy there. The Vatican is talking about these things all the time. That's another thing for another discussion we should have, the Vatican. Um, so there are rumblings of peace breaking out in the Middle East and that there may be some big announcement coming um, with Netanyahu and the surrounding nations. I think that's interesting, but it does remind me of the 70s when I was living in a dorm in Bible college and we were watching, you know, Menachem Begin in the 70s and the, looking for the budding of the fig tree and, and, and Camp David and the peace talks. So it's just another one of those rumblings where it looks like there might be some kind of a deal struck. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that that's Daniel 9 verses 24 through 27? Who knows? You know? <laughs> I'm, I'm a skeptical, even of a skeptic, even of my own theories, but I do find it interesting and I do find it unprecedented because unlike in the seventies, when it was just Egypt that made a deal with peace and Anwar Sadat got assassinated for making that deal. Now it's a bunch of countries mm -hmm. that are talking about that, that surround Israel that are saying, let's make a deal. Um, I find that the, the timing interesting. And especially when you bring that alongside with the things that the Vatican, this new Jesuit Pope, what they've been saying, and you get into the topic of Chrislam, which is the Kumbaya merger of the world's great religions and the New Age movement, and centering it somewhere. I see that moving towards Jerusalem. And I suspect, it's speculation, but it's informed speculation, that in the near future, Jerusalem is going to become the center of a lot more than we've ever imagined. And it's going to be celebrated, and it's going to be accepted, and you're going to have the Pope praying with imams, praying with rabbis, praying with evangelicals and mainstream Christendom. Um, and that may be the lead into the, seven, the final seven years. What are your thoughts? Well, um, okay, so I got a couple thoughts. Um, first, I would say that that very well could be. I don't have any hard distinction or problems with anything going on being uh, the peace deal stuff, but I got I got some things to say about it. First of all, I think the peace deal is part of the Hal Lindsey hangover. The, the, a covenant mm -hmm. with many is not necessarily a peace deal. It could be, but basically 927 is all we got on that. It says it has to be a covenant with many and it must be three and three and a half years later, the daily sacrifice of the temple needs to stop. As far as I'm reading that, that's the three things. The peace and safety comes from uh, what is it? Second first uh, Thessalonians five, which is definitely sure. where, where would you put another one? Cause I mean, that definitely has nothing to do with the 927 because it says, sudden destruction will come upon them when they're saying peace and safety, which he specifically I, I defines connect. as the day of the Lord. So it can't yeah. be unless, unless the peace agreement starts and stops on the same day, then it can't be associated with, there's no peace that, that well, in I'm other not, words. Yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah, Chris, I, I would not make the connection between the confirming of a firm covenant in Daniel 24 with 1 Thessalonians 5 when they are saying peace and safety. I have not made that connection. Mm-hmm. That's something that's usually done by pre-tribbers. 1 Thessalonians 5, that when they are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them. That is at the onset of the day of the Lord and the Parousia sure. program. That's deep into the seven-year program, sure. not at the beginning. So that, that's just to clarify, I don't connect these two things. So, so, Back to you. Okay, so yeah, I would say that, I mean, that does not say that Daniel 9, 27, he will make a firm or make a covenant firm or however you want to read that with many, uh, but in the middle of the week, sacrifices will, will end. That doesn't mean that that can't be a peace agreement with many, but it, if it is, then we're talking about very, very general. Then it could be anything. We just got to keep our eyes open for whatever, as long as three and a half years later, sacrifices i.e., in this case, need to start and stop. Um, but it, so if any sometime in the next three and a half years, sacri- the daily sacrifice starts at, and then is stopped three and a half years, then we'll know what it was, right? So we that's that's the only stipulation I have there. With regard to... Andrew, this is Dan- Daniel 9, 27. And he, that is the people... The, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But there's that coordinate conjunction, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. I would say, reading the flow of that verse, that there appears to be a cause and effect. Mm. The, the making of a firm covenant for one week, followed by the clause, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice. It implies, I'm not saying this proves it, but it implies that this firm covenant has something to do with sacrifice and offering. Oh yeah. And then in a, in a weird adversative, you know, but in a weird way, it starts as a firm covenant, but it's interrupted or the effect of that covenant, which is the allowance of sacrifices is interrupted, which would one would not expect. And the result is the abomination. That's my take on that verse. Right, and and I would say I've made the point before that the odd language of making a covenant firm or making firm a covenant, read BibleHub.com on that. You're going to get a different translation in almost every version, which I assume means it's hard to translate. Um, But it does seem that there is, I wouldn't know if I would go so far as to call it a consensus, but the idea that he's making a covenant firm, he's making some covenant that presumably has existed before firm by this thing. And my, and I agree that you could, it's a reasonable conclusion to say that, it, that this thing that happens must have something to do with the daily sacrifice. Now I, I'm, I'm going to go into it in a podcast. I've got uh, lined up with somebody, um, but to make a long story short, I think it's a ribbon cu- cu- cutting of the temple. Uh, but back to the, the other sort of, let's take my theories about it uh, out of the equation and go back to the Jared Kushner thing. Uh, I can't remember the second part I was going to have a pushback on, but. Okay. Well, while you're thinking of that, I would uh, just returning to verse 27 and Daniel, um, the, the making of a firm covenant. I know there are many who jump on that and they say that, well, that's, he's renewing or affirming the Mosaic covenant or something like that. It may be, but I don't really see that in the text. I see it just as he's, 
he, he makes or confirms or firms up a deal. And like you were saying, it's cryptic. It's not that clear. And I think it's meant to be a little bit vague. But it's, the, the part that's not vague is that it's for one week. But in the middle, I'm reading again, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to these things, these activities. So either and the sacrifices of offering, the sacrifices, daily sacrifice, because Dana makes it clear it's the daily sacrifice. Either, yes. it, it was either going on before that, it presumes that it had always been going on or had been going on for years before that or sometime before that. Or it started at that point, which I feel like is a stronger argument. But again, it's, it's, it's not clear. So, but in any I case, think it could be either. Yeah. I, I think you can put your flag in the sand with, with the covenant and say, whether it's a peace deal, whether it's a whatever, the, the covenant is vague, but we can be sure that whatever it is, sacrifices the daily sacrifice, which is a very specific thing with very specific animals and, and bread and wheat and some very specific stuff. It's how, you know, whatever that starts three and a half years after that point. So you could probably, you would have to retroactively go back. If in fact, one of these deals has been the thing, then we got to go back and retroactively say, okay, what happened three and a half years after that? Because now the daily sacrifices have been ended because the Antichrist sat in the temple, declared himself to be God. Again, it all comes back to the midpoint. Like that's why I feel it has to be the revealing of the mid. Everything is vague until that moment. Um, yes. I couldn't agree more. I, I, for another talk, maybe if we have one um, sometime, I'll just mention this before we leave verse 27 of Daniel. I think it's possible that there are two persons in view in that verse, that the one that makes the firm covenant and puts a stop, that is person number one, and then the one that makes the abomination, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. That might be a second person. But I'm not dogmatic. I'm doing some, ex some, some digging on that. I'm looking at the Septuagint. It's a work in progress. It well, doesn't really It's matter. incredibly really difficult if, passage for lots. There's no, like, obvious yep. referent for the he and, you know. Yeah, there's uh, ellipsis there, and it's Hebrew, and Hebrew is, more, is clunkier. Uh, by clunkier, I mean... It's not, you can't pin it down as closely as you can Greek. So, um, and, have I, you I heard uh, Charles Cooper's take on that in his, uh, I think it was the Matthew 24 book? I don't know. I goes, read his book a few, go ahead. He, uh, anyway, I'm going to talk, that's one of the things I'm going to talk about in a future podcast, but basically that the, the issue with the Messiah there is not, in fact, a person, but rather the temple. The anointed one is actually a reference to the temple in that. Yeah, I do remember reading that. And at the time when I was looking at his notes and my own notes, I disagreed with that. I'm not fresh on that subject right now. Uh, I love Charles Cooper. He's a great teacher, uh, fantastic person to listen to on, on long drives. I, uh, I, I can't thank him enough. But I disagree with him on a few things. Um, that's sure. one of them in and, Revelation know, 13, another. Well, that's one of the great things about, I feel like pre-rathers have a unique ability to talk about Bible prophecy. One of the reasons I think this podcast will be edited fine for people is that, that we can talk about things in a way that I don't feel like pre-tribbers can. Pre-tribbers are, are always trying to talk about Bible prophecy with a very narrow window of the things that they can talk about. And it, it just, and disagreements are more, problematic um but the, i agree with that <laughs> disagreements among pre-rathers typically take the form of we all agree on the same hermeneutic 
And uh, so yeah. it's really a much more lucrative or not lucrative, whatever the word I'm looking for, useful. And it's, yeah, it's more grassroots. If you ask me, I spent a good 10 years in the pre-trib camp, including teaching it in, in at church and Bible classes and whatnot. And you're right. Um, it, it is more limited. They, they enforce amongst themselves what the acceptable limits of discussion are. Pre-wrath people are, in my opinion, that's more grassroots. We all agree on certain basic things that the church is going to, the last gen of the church is going to see the Antichrist. Um, we agree on some basics, but these finer points of prophecy, the seven heads and the eighth, what is that? Uh, Gog, Magog, what, what, what is that? We have disagreements. So what, you know, um, Charles Cooper's comment on Daniel 9, I mean, a lot of people have gone to Daniel 9 recently and, and, and tried to make it prove all kinds of things. Michael Heiser, read what he has to say about it. I disagree with him. He uses Daniel 9 to basically say, prophecy is too hard. You can't understand it, so move along. <laughs> yeah, <You know>? no. <laughs> Nothing to see here. I'm sorry. Um, I don't buy that. But I love Michael Heiser, too, for, for other things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Greg, let's uh, let's go ahead and wrap it up here. Thanks for coming on the show. I'm going to go ahead and end the podcast here.